0: From High Atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, December 17th. High Thurman helped found Chicago's Young Patriots organization in 1968. The group was made up of white Southerners looking for work, but who mostly found discrimination and poverty. They fought for things like affordable housing and health care and raised awareness of police brutality. They also joined with the Black Panther Party and Young Lords to form the Rainbow Coalition, an influential multiracial network. Now, Thurman is based in Alabama, where he runs an organizing school, and he started a second Rainbow Coalition. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom interviewed Thurman about his life and lessons learned from organizing. As labor issues heat up around the country, Thurman thinks these lessons could be useful. Especially in rural areas like southeastern Utah.
1: I was born in East Tennessee, a small town called Dayton, Dayton, Tennessee, just north of Chattanooga. About the only thing town's ever known for was I don't know if you've ever heard of the Scopes Evolutionary Trial. That was in my hometown. So I'm living proof that monkeys exist. And <laughs> There wasn't much around in those days that, you know, to help people economically or health-wise or or anything. It was still pretty much a depressed community, but we were basically sharecroppers. Went to work and, you know, during the harvest season or the planting season, we would be, you know, working in the fields. I was taken out into the, the field To work, and this was, you know, basically, uh, I was was three years old when they took me out there. My older sisters would kind of watch us during the day, and then they'd take turns about going out and working. As long as I could remember, up until I went to Chicago, we were pooling our money together, and and that's how we would eat. We were considered to be trash, you know, we were considered to be, you know, the lower-caste And we were treated that way in school. We were treated that way, you know, in in public. My oldest brother, and he went to Chicago. And when I got old enough to go to leave, I left, dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. And I mean, I never really went there anyway, because I always had to work. I, I went to Chicago. It was no different. It was terrible. I went to a place called Uptown Chicago on the north side of Chicago and there were over 40,000 people from the South at that time. And so this particular community was was nothing more than a, than a slum, a ghetto, heavy police brutality, murders. And they're living in these, you know, just a slum buildings. I remember children being bitten by rats and there were a lot of disease and there were no services for people at all. The Uptown community had an unemployment rate of 47%. My brother was one of the co-leaders of a gang up there called the Peacemakers. He had gotten away from the gang and started hanging out somewhat with some Student for Democratic Society organizers that came into the community. They came into the community to try to get jobs and set up jobs or income now the union which they found out very quickly that jobs are really part of the problem. The other brutality, the slum living conditions, the health you know, needs, welfare. Some of them that were more radical started hanging out with people and eventually got the community to do a march on the local police station for brutality and murder because several of the peacemakers, people in the community had been you know, just shot down by the cops. You know, and I wish I could say that this is not true, but it's all true. Uh, We were from the South, you know, we were raised in a racist environment. It was in us, but there were a small group of us who said, yeah, but we're anti-racist. We don't like what's going on because everything in the Black community or the Brown community, the poor communities happening here. So why can't we do something about it in our community? We started as a group of young, just young people. I was seventeen when I started, just organizing the community, getting together, going to meetings, and you know, we didn't have a childhood. We didn't have an idea of what childhood was. We had to grow up very fast. We had to grow up very fast in the, you know, in the South, and we had to grow up very fast on the street. So I'm not glorifying any of this. It was just our life where we were put at in history. So we decided we would, well, we'd stand up and fight and do what we could. As a youth group, we took over a lot of the, the city's uh, meetings and had to do with our community and urban renewal, which was we mm-hmm. just termed as poor people's removal because Mayor Daly's tactic to change a community and he wanted to get rid of all the, all the poor people, was to put an institution in those communities. In Uptown, he wanted to put in a, a community college. And that community college would displace the majority of the, the Southern people where they lived. And so we got together with other organizations, and it wasn't only the Patriots, but we pushed it was what was called the People's Village. And we developed an alternative where this college was going to go, uh, it eventually was called Hank Williams Village because Hank Williams was a very famous country idol. It would be modeled after a you know a southern town, and it would be uh, governed by the people that lived there. And it was called the greatest housing plan that never was because the city. That shut us out at one point and how we got involved with the Rainbow Coalition, you know Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. we always liked what the Panthers were doing, and actually we were modeling a lot of our stuff after the Panthers, but we didn't really know any of them. We went to a meeting in which we were trying to raise money for funds for you know to help out the community, but you know we didn't know that the Panthers were going to be there, and the Panthers didn't know we were going to be there. And so there was a representative named Bobby Lee, he got up and he said, you know, they're trying to do the same in their community as we're doing here. So this this was the beginning of of the uh, relationship between the Panthers and the Young Patriots. Bobby Lee, he came to Uptown and lived in Uptown for a couple of weeks and saw what we were doing and went back to Fred Hampton and told them about it. He said, you know, there's these crazy, crazy hillbillies up on the north side of Chicago talking anti-racism and revolution and and wearing this damn Confederate flag. Hampton said, you know, he's real reluctant. He said, but yet, you know, this is what we need for the revolution. started at that point organizing together, and then they... Young Lords, which was Hispanic, gang-turned-political, had become a part, we'd all become a part of the Rainbow Coalition. So the original Rainbow Coalition was the Panthers, the Young Lords, and the Young Patriots. You know, we were working together very effectively. We were able to reach a lot of the Southern people who come from rural areas, farmers, and also coal miners. And this is very important for people who's going to organize in any of these areas to understand the culture of what they're doing. So we developed classes in community organizing, for instance. We also had history and culture of the Southern white migrant, history and culture of the Native American, history and culture of the Hispanic American, history and culture of the Black Power Movement. Fred Hampton gets a lot of credit for it, in which he should, for the development of the Rainbow Coalition but he never wanted to be the leader. And the Rainbow Coalition was designed where it wouldn't have a leader because it would be a collective. And uh, that's the way the, the Rainbow Coalition operated. And that's that's one of the areas that concerned Mayor Daly and, and J.R. Hoover. They wanted someone that they could pinpoint as the leader. And so they did identify, of course, you know, Fred Hampton as the leader. And we knew how that ended up because Fred Hampton was murdered 52 years ago this week. Well, you know, back in the day uh, when we were organizing, we, we didn't have the cell phone, we didn't have the social media, and there weren't thousands of opinions out there on how to do something. And what we need to do is to find commonalities that people have. The social media thing is a thing that's really hurting us these days and helping us. If you can come up with a system of, okay, this is what we believe, this is who we are. Do you believe this? People have to serve first, I think. They kind of have to serve the people. Even though you know the Panthers and the young lords and young patriots were leaders in the community, we were servers first. No, don't get me wrong I like I like black lives matter a lot I mean i I do I work with black lives matter but you have to have a certain mindset when you're when you're talking to let's say for instance if you're trying to convert a trump supporter you may not get very far if you talk about black lives matter but if you talk about something like the rainbow coalition where everybody is involved and everybody is included then you stand a better chance of of working with people. If you put a group together, then make sure it's represented to everybody. That it's not just a group of, you know, white people out there telling other people what to do all the time, you know. And it's not just a group of black people because a lot of the white people are going to be racist and they're going to, you know, not pay much attention to it. Uh, I don't think we can do anything without thinking about commonalities. I am optimistic, and I see a lot of good things happening, which is one of the reasons we put together the second Rainbow Coalition. There's still a few of us around that haven't given up. We still try. We don't always succeed, but, you know, we damn sure try. And so Brad Hampton says that you can kill the revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. And so we still believe in the revolution. We still believe that change could come in to this country and to this world. We have to try to be that change and get people to be the change, to be self determined in their community.
0: That's hi Thurman, one of the founders of the Rainbow Coalition, talking about his life and lessons learned from organizing. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom had the opportunity to interview Thurman and put this piece together for our listeners. And now the weekly newsreel, where we discuss stories about the Moab area with the journalists and editors who reported them. Arches National Park recently released the details of their pilot timed entry system for next year. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more.
2: I'm sure everybody's heard by now that Arches is going to go to a uh, timed entry, a pilot timed entry system. They're going to uh, test it from April to October. Mm -hmm. If you want to visit the park in April, you uh, can start uh, making your reservations in January. It's a it's a pretty straightforward plan but people who are interested in um in visiting the park locals and uh uh, out-of-towners alike they they need to read up on it because you've got to register with uh, you have to um, make your reservation on uh, Mm -hmm. recreation.gov there will be there will always be some leftover reservations for last minute people who you know i didn't plan a trip they're more flying by the seat of their pants. Um, so hopefully, you know, maybe those people can be accommodated, maybe not. But right, we'll see if this helps with congestion at the park, because if it does, uh, it should help with congestion in town as well.
0: And like you said, it's a pilot-timed entry. So I think the Park Service is emphasizing that the way it works is not set in stone. Um, they can make adjustments to it, right. and, you know, they are going to be collecting data uh, throughout April through October, when it's running, yeah, um, and, and they yeah.
2: did do quite a bit of public outreach ahead of time. Um, not mm-hmm. everybody's happy with it, but I think um, if you took a show of hands in Moab, most people would be very—you uh, know—would be raising their hands, saying, "Yeah, we support this plan. You know, and we'll try anything."
0: It's Kind of wild from where we were, you know, just a few years ago when people said absolutely no to uh, the reservation system, many local business owners, and now we're at a totally different spot. Right. Um, several years later.
2: Right. I think it's really important to stress that the goal isn't to limit, you know, reduce the number of visitors. It's just to spread them out Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the day, throughout the week. So it's more manageable. And uh, the benefits, if it works, are going to be pretty big because everybody's going to have a much better experience at Arches. And they're going to have a better experience when they come to town and they don't have to wait two hours to eat.
0: Take us somewhere else, Doug.
2: (laughs) Okay. Um, In 2018, on Halloween night in 2018, there was a murder at the Walnut Lane uh, trailer park that the city has since purchased. Uh, That man who was convicted, Omar Guerrero, he was convicted of murder and kidnapping uh, charges and he was sentenced by Judge Don Torgerson to a total of 32 years to life. Mm -hmm. He appealed, accusing the judge of making a mistake by allowing certain evidence to come in at trial, and he accused his defense attorney, Steve Russell, of uh, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, uh, which is a pretty typical complaint in these uh, criminal appeals. Um, And uh, the Utah Court of Appeals, uh, found no merit whatsoever in in any of his uh, claims um, i I covered that uh, that trial from gavel to gavel as they say, and um, the judge got it right uh, the uh, prosecutor got it right, and the jury got it right so mm-hmm. this is good news for uh people who believe in law and order
0: so Omar Guero is still serving out his sentence then
2: yeah he won 't even come up for parole for another 29 years.
0: Wow. This was a, a really um, big case here in Moab, like you said, in 2018. I know you were in the courtroom um, for every day of that trial, right? I then? was.
2: I was. The thing that I came away with was this is the first big trial I covered in Grand County.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I covered uh, trials in Las Vegas mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And um, the attorneys who participated in that trial uh, on both sides, uh, the judge and the uh, court personnel, uh, I was really impressed.
0: Yeah.
2: I was mm-hmm. really, really impressed. Uh, uh, there's, there's attorneys here in, in Grand County that would easily hold their own in, in the big city. And we're very lucky because mm-hmm. you don't always find that in a small town.
0: Now, this is a very newsy paper for the Times Independent this yes. week. Um, do you mind mentioning what's going on with Grand County EMS?
2: Their new building, their 4.8 million, 12,500 square foot building, uh, as of today, Friday, December 17th, is substantially completed.
0: (laughs) Substantially. What does that mean? Um,
2: That means that it's almost done. Now, there are a couple of problems with uh, supply chain issues. Okay. Um, EMS director Andy Smith told me that the, uh, the big bay doors, if you, if you look at the photo on the front page mm-hmm. to the right, you can see a big sheet of plastic across the bay doors.
0: Oh, I
2: see. Because those doors are, uh, as Andy Smith said, on a ship somewhere in the Pacific. Okay. So they just haven't come in. And, okay. and neither have these high-tech door locks. You know, they have key card, mm, okay. uh, key card door locks. Those, okay. those locks have not come in either. So they can't really move in until those items come in i think they're going to start though they're going to probably start monday moving mm-hmm. in the big stuff mm-hmm. and you know just moving in but they probably will not not be living there until uh, after the new year
0: now this is a big project this has been in the works for a long time getting a new headquarters for grand county emergency medical services and moving you know the sleeping quarters for emts and paramedics from that um downtown dilapidated building
2: yes uh, that building is over 100 years old up from what i understand and i've been inside of it and it's pretty dilapidated they're new digs they each have their own room with a little you know small bed and, uh, mm-hmm. and a desk and they have some really, you know, it's not just a new building. There's some new technology, too, like the uh, narcotics. They have mm-hmm. a pretty sophisticated locking system. Mm-hmm. Um, key card entry, you can't, you know, so that, sure. those are secure. They have a new system. The ambulances, they, they rotate. Yeah. They take turns responding to calls. So now if a, if a call comes in overnight when everybody's sleeping, uh-huh. um, they only wake up the next crew. Who's, who's up next? The other the other not everybody gets woken up. So hopefully they're getting, you know, more sleep. Um right. but then again on the weekends nobody's getting any sleep anyway because the colds just keep coming in when you mm-hmm. know during during the season. So that was pretty cool. They have a new contamination room so they're not when they when they respond to, you know, really bad scenes, mm-hmm. they're not spreading contaminants all over the building. They're not bringing them home. They can right. walk right into this room get out of their clothes, get in the shower, get decontaminated, put on a fresh pair of scrubs. So they have a very relaxing um, environment in which to live compared to where they've been residing. Um, I, I, I kind of joke in the, in the story that um, they may not want to leave. So you know <laughs> <respond> to- <laughs> it's kind of nice
0: in there. Yeah, it
2: is. It, well, and you know what? And they deserve uh-huh. it because they... Uh, they serve They serve the community uh, admirably. All of our first responders do.
0: So like you say in your story, this is a 4.8 million, 12,500 square foot facility. I think we may have failed to let listeners know where it is.
2: We did. And you know what? I left it out of the story. A, a reader calls and I'm like, how did I leave that out? It's- it is uh, where 100 North terminates up the hill on the other side of Center Street mm-hmm. uh, at the Ruckridge. Uh, they share... A parking lot basically with the rock ridge senior mm-hmm. apartments
0: so ems they um of course have their own special service district now and i know that they did receive a loan to build this facility as well
2: they did uh the county commission it was a council at the time but they um they made it their number one priority with the CIB, the Community Impact Board. Mm. I think they had 17 different projects that they were going to apply for funding for grant funding, right. and they made the uh, the need for a, a new EMS building uh, number one. And it had to be. Um, I'm sure you were in the yeah. in the existing EMS building or the old EMS building before they they tore it down. Um, ceiling tiles were gone. It leaked. The carpet mm-hmm. was all ripped up. Mm-hmm yeah um it was an ancient building that served the community probably well up until the sixties mm-hmm. or seventies but yeah it definitely needed to go away it was uh, uh-huh. it was a mess
0: well it's exciting that uh e m s is it's almost done as you say substantially completed yes. um anything else you want to mention
2: um the only thing i would i would add is um uh really sad the other day uh about 4 45 in the morning two truckers i uh, had a head-on collision mm. and um, they were both uh, killed yeah. on 191 about four miles uh four miles from interstate 70. Mm. Uh, i think a lot of the responders were pretty upset about that uh, one was driving southbound and he drifted across the center line into another truck and that guy he died immediately and the other guy died um before the ambulance, the air ambulance, could come and mm. whisk him away to a hospital. So it was pretty sad.
0: Doug McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. The city council this week allocated funding to replace the Pack Creek footbridge near King Creek Boulevard. Their action comes after staff had condemned the bridge and closed it to the public. Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage and starts off with the bridge's location.
3: So if you're driving south on 191 or Moab's Main Street, you get to about... I mean, if we want to talk, like, regional directions, you get to, like, the McDonald's, you mm-hmm. know, uh, or to the movie theater. You get to the intersection of 191 and Cane Creek Boulevard, and it's essentially almost a, a hairpin turn reversing your direction so that you end up following the Colorado River. Mm, yeah. um, so that leaves this little peninsula of mostly private property going along Pat Creek. Mm-hmm. In the middle of that... Kind of around um, St. Francis Episcopal Church, there is an older footbridge that's crossing the creek that allows um, bikers and pedestrians to kind of cut around having to bike all the way down Cane Creek Boulevard, make that hairpin Mm -hmm. turn, and reverse their way back up Main Street. Mm. Um, This bridge is like probably around 35 years old. There's not actually good records on the the building or the structure mm-hmm. because it seems almost like a, a folk bridge, you know, like, you know, architects, I know everyone out there is like thinking of like the interesting term, which I feel like people really are into these days, where there's like the term like desire lines. Do you know that
0: term? No, I don't. Educate me. I love this term. Uh-huh. So
3: it's a, like a um, a landscape design and kind of sometimes an architectural term
0: uh-huh.
3: for uh Places where the grass is worn away because everyone wants to walk in one certain way.
0: Oh, okay. Right? Right. Okay. That's nice.
3: I know. It's one of those things that like you didn't know that you needed a word for. Mm Mm-hmm. So this footbridge obviously is a structure, but in a way, it's sort of, again, kind of reminiscent of that. Mm -hmm. Pedestrians and bikers, all of these folks Mm -hmm. looked at the way that the roads are laid out and just said, like, well, this doesn't work for traveling in this way. And so there's this little footbridge. However, this really simple footbridge that's quite useful to a Mm -hmm. lot of people um, gets a little bit more complicated when you think of, okay, here's this, like, kind of folk bridge. It's useful to folks, but who's maintaining it? City officials kind of got hip to this, looked at it, and just kind of judged it as to be so structurally unsound Mm -hmm. that they basically condemned it. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, they said, like, well, we don't know even when we're going to replace this bridge because we don't really have the money for it.
0: Mm -hmm. And then there was a little bit of outcry from community members, huh?
3: Yeah. I mean, that's why I really like this story. You know, we made it our top story this week because I think it's one of those stories that really shows why I love – um, being a community newspaper so much because, you know, if we were in a larger town mm. or we kind of like focusing more exclusively on like the quote unquote big stories, right? you'd miss things that are actually like really important to people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, tons of people who live or work in that area or even just folks who are going from the city center, um, you know, out down Cane Creek Boulevard, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, to the river. Basically, everyone kind of had this this outpouring of <laughs> their personal relationship with this right.
0: footbridge.
3: Mm-hmm. It's literally like a five-foot bridge. It's it's very yes, small. <laughs> you,
0: would, you would maybe even miss it if you weren't looking directly for it. It
3: almost looks like, you know, like in a grandma's backyard, right. like a little yeah. piece of like landscaping. <laughs> but it is like Super essential. One of the women that uh, our, you know, wonderful reporter Rachel Fix and talked to for the story pointed out that like, not only is this like a convenience issue mm-hmm. for people, um, you know, you're going down two major streets. So if you're walking or if you're on a bike, um, it actually is a little bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. You have to go through a major intersection, mm-hmm. all of this. That being said, from the city's perspective, getting the bridge replaced or repaired is actually quite costly. I feel like maybe people would be a little surprised by that.
0: You know, I was surprised when they threw out that estimation. You're right. It was quite costly. The figure is Mm $300,000.
3: Yeah, so in order to replace the bridge, they would have to, you know, do engineering. Mm -hmm. There would have to be, like, you know, Mm Spextron. Back when the bridge was built, who knows if someone did that? Mm -hmm. Question mark? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So now, you know, it would have to go through sort of this whole whole formal process. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fascinating, though, just how... frustrated some of the council members got with how how difficult the replacement of a fairly tiny and minor bridge was. I thought it was really interesting.
0: Yeah, there were some comments. Council member Mike Duncan for one. He had some fairly colorful comments to say during the meeting. Well,
3: yeah, you know, there's always when we look at a bureaucracy, there's always like judgment calls mm-hmm. that you know, we might make in our our personal lives and the whole sort of point of ordinances and bureaucracy is to sort of take that judgment out mm-hmm. of it. But yeah, I think, you know, he might have had at least a... uh It was a good thing to kind of ground the conversation in when he Mm -hmm. pointed out, you know, if we're looking at this small bridge from a safety perspective and thinking like, okay, well, we're like condemning or restricting this bridge from public use because of safety issues. From Mike Duncan's perspective, he said like someone would really, really have to be a very unlucky person Mm. to -hmm. to be significantly injured. Um, It is a very small bridge Mm -hmm. right now. Pat Creek is, you know, very low. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's over. You know, a big, you know, uh, waterway or anything like that. So, you know, while I think that all of us individually would kind of see Mike Duncan's point, if you're familiar with the bridge, and and obviously a lot of the residents kind of echoed that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, saying like, hey, this is a useful bridge, it doesn't appear to be like a super safety issue. Right. On the other hand, again, if we were to make this bridge today, you know, there would be a lot of changes, mm-hmm. you know, also keeping in mind, you know, future flooding events, you know, the decking floats, the The current railing is, you know, quote unquote, too low, mm-hmm. you know, it's not to to sort of safety specs now. So like, once you start looking at it, there's all of these problems. Mm-hmm. Um However, ultimately, it looks like the bridge itself will be replaced rather mm-hmm. than, you know, repaired or just sort of condemned and, and everyone has to figure it out <laughs> right. by themselves. Everyone has to forward the creek. Right. <laughs> um, ultimately, the council did hear from residents and voted five to zero um, to approve a budget amendment setting aside mm-hmm. $300,000. To replace the bridge and they're also hoping that a grant comes through from you know sort of the state parks and rec department to mm-hmm. to mitigate some of that cost.
0: So they put their put the money out there. I mean, it sounds like the bridge is still officially closed, yeah. but people are using it.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I would I would speculate that it's it's mostly a liability issue at this point. Yeah. Again, from a pedestrian standpoint, you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to go across this bridge." But if you were like the landowner mm-hmm. or the city mm-hmm. or, you know, someone else who theoretically, you know, um could be held like legally re- legally responsible for that bridge, mm. you'd be feeling a lot different right
0: now, true, well, thanks, Maggie. Anything else to mention about this piece and the mobs and news?
3: Just that you know I think our our town rules, and I think it's a really <laughs> interesting story. I just think it's really cool to just to, to keep the paper like grounded in the stuff that mm. people really care about the stuff that like literally is happening. In their backyard and on their commute.
0: Mm. And speaking of, um, the Mobs and News has a year in review coming up.
3: Yeah, we do. So a new edition won't hit stands next week. You know, we take a week off. It's pretty crucial. (laughs) Um, You know, every year it kind of hurts my heart just because I'm like, but what if something happens? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can always go to our website. It's just a way for um, our, our staff to be able to like fully like, you know, reconnect with our families, which I hope you know every all of our listeners out there get a chance to do as well but we return um on new year's eve our edition will come out and it's our year in review which is our sort of annual look back at the the top news stories um the like kind of interesting photos um and everything that happened in that weird year of hmm.
0: 2021 maggie mcguire editor and publisher of the Mobson news subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com and that's the weekly newsreel where we discuss stories about the moab area with the journalists and editors who reported them you can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of kzmu news on our website or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for tuning in and supporting kzmu moab community
2: radio